0: The New Statesman. Hi, it's producer Adrian here. We're bringing you a special podcast today from our Spotlight team. And the New Statesman podcast team will be back tomorrow.
1: I'm Alona Ferber, editor of the New Statesman Spotlight policy section, and this is a special podcast from the New Statesman Spotlight team. This episode is the second in a three-part special series, Are We There Yet? How far have we come on autonomous vehicles? In this series, we'll explore the future of autonomous vehicles, or AVs, self-driving cars, and the impact they might have, or probably will have, on the way we run our roads, cities, and the world. In this, the second episode of our special series produced in partnership with WeJo, the smart mobility tech company, we're going to be discussing the policy obstacles and opportunities for rolling out electric vehicles. In 2020, the UK government announced the end of the sale of new petrol and diesel cars by 2030. At the time, Boris Johnson's government pledged £1.8 billion to support greater uptake of zero-emission vehicles, including £1.3 billion, to roll out more charge points for electric vehicles across the country. Today, the 2020 announcement said, at the time, a driver is never more than 25 miles away from a rapid charge point anywhere along England's motorways and major A-roads. Since then, the UK has seen the biggest year-on-year growth in electric car registration for years. At the end of October 2022, there were 590,000 battery electric cars and 430,000 plug-in hybrids on the roads. And 2021 saw a 92% growth in the number of battery electric cars compared to 2020. To put this into perspective, in 2017, that figure was around 44,000. But there are millions of registered cars on the road in the UK, so how far have we come on the EV journey? Today we're going to discuss how close we are to mass EV adoption, a milestone on the road to net zero on our roads. What are the major infrastructure issues for cities racing to roll out charging points? What problems do energy companies face as adoption increases? And when will EVs become truly affordable? Given the economic climate, ongoing range anxiety and semiconductor shortages, there are many challenges to EV adoption, and we will at least attempt to try to look at them all. So joining me for this discussion, we have Richard Barlow, CEO of Wejo, Melanie Shufflebotham, founder and COO of the EV charging app ZapMap and Dale Vince, CEO of Ecotricity. We'll also hear from Philippe van Giel, Secretary General of Avere, which is the European Association for Electromobility. Thank you all so much for joining us today. Dale, I'm going to start with a question for you. In 2012, your company, EcoTristy, developed an electric racing car that ran on wind power. And you said at the time that you wanted to smash stereotypes of electric cars as something noddy would drive. Slow, boring, not cool. Do you think, do you, is this how people see EVs now? Do you think the average person sees an EV as an option for them?
2: Yeah, we're way past that stereotype. So we started work on that car in t- 2008 and we got it on the road in 2010. I think it might have been 2012 when we broke the land speed record. We called it the nemesis, the car. We came up with the idea before you could buy an electric car in the world, we could see the electrification of transport in all its forms, but particularly cars, was vital to sustainability. I wanted an electric car, couldn't buy one, so we made one. That's the story. But having it on the road in 2010 led us to understand this problem, that people wouldn't buy cars unless they could charge them easily, and people weren't building somewhere to charge because there weren't cars on the road. So we built the electric highway in 2011. I think we're way past... The naughty stereotype. I think range anxiety comes up every now and then, but I think as a kind of as a large scale problem, I just don't think it's there because the range of modern cars, the cars you can buy today, is typically three hundred miles, and the speed of charging is incredible. When we began the highway, we were putting three pin plugs on the motorway, three kilowatt connections. When we exited the highway last year, sold it to Grid Vitashi, we'd just built three hundred and fifty kilowatt charges. The speed at which you can put power into a car now is incredible and we're almost in a place where you can top up in 10 minutes and if you look at the use case of a fossil car most people pop to a garage once every week or every two weeks to spend a few minutes topping up or filling up their tank or something and so it's becoming really close to what most people are used to the price is still a little bit more uh, expensive the cost of running was way lower before the energy crisis i think it's become a little bit comparable to oil at the moment but that will fall away and the manufacturers are making big progress in bringing down the cost of buying them so i think we're in an incredible place. Ten years ago, there were virtually no electric cars on the road. And today, the stats you just rolled out at the start of this piece show you that it's the most popular new car to be bought in Britain right now. And, and this changed incredibly. I'm full of like, enthusiasm for that.
1: Thank you, Dale. It's great to start on an enthusiastic and optimistic note in this discussion. <laughs> Melanie, ZapMap, which you co-founded, helps people find charging points for their EVs, and you state as your mission that you want to accelerate the shift to electric vehicles. Dale, talked now about the, the fact that there, there are plenty of charging points. Range anxiety shouldn't really need to be a thing anymore. But when you talk to EV drivers or people considering getting an EV, is anxiety about range or even
3: charging point anxiety, is that one of the things that's stopping people? I think the first thing to say is that actually at the moment, demand for electric vehicles way outstrips supply. So there's a very healthy demand, a healthy market for electric vehicles. Just as Dale said, people are overthinking of them as co- as vehicles they can't have, that they realise that they're fantastic for the environment, great to drive and can save them costs. But in terms of questions we get from our EV drivers, it very much differs depending on whether they've already got an EV or, or they're looking for an EV. So when they're looking, they're much broader questions and they may have questions such as, Ooh, are there any charge points out there? I'm concerned. I've heard in the press there aren't any or how much does it cost or how long does it take? So for that, ZapMap has, has a number of guides and tools to really help them in the sort of education process. And then when people actually have an EV, then that's different. Most people charge at home. So 80% of EV drivers have a charge point at home, which is really dramatically changes your home whole mobility pattern because most people charge up at home, they get 200, 250 miles in their car and they don't need to charge up on the public network, except when going on longer journeys. And then the balance obviously then need to find charge points on the public network. But then it's more about finding the right charge point to suit their needs. So if you're on a long journey, it needs to be rapid, it needs to be reliable, and you need to be able to see if someone's actually using that. But if you're you're going to a destination or you need an on-street charger, then you're looking for a different type of charger. So really what ZAPMAP is helping EV drivers do is when they're out and about, find the right charger for the right need and be able to see live availability data and user comments so that they feel confident when they're out and about. Thank you, Melanie. And Richard,
1: the day that we're recording this, electric vehicles kind of are in the news with mixed signals. You've got Toyota launching six new models of electric cars. And at the same time, you've got car makers saying, warning that EU tariffs are going to really drive up prices of electric cars and make them unaffordable for people. Wejo, you've developed an operating system for electric vehicles and you talk to car manufacturers and industry all the time, organisations involved in the supply of EVs. What do you hear from them at the moment? Are they confident in the current economic climate that EV the uptake can continue to grow?
4: Well, as Dale was saying, the demand is outstripping supply, and we get data from over 27 OEMs, auto manufacturers, and fleet providers and tier ones. So we're seeing a huge number of new vehicles being added to our platform. We receive data from over 20 million vehicles live. The bigger problem we're seeing is that even now, where less than 5% of vehicles on the road are EV, we see on a localised basis that demand on the grid is already exceeding the availability of power. That needs to be addressed. What we're doing is we're working with energy providers, we're working with automotive manufacturers to help there to be more intelligence around the grid so that so the grid can be upgraded appropriately. But the investment needs to be managed accordingly to identify where vehicles are being deployed.
1: Richard, Wejo is very active in the US I and mean, you've been doing a lot of work with state departments of transport to support them to roll out EVs. Can you tell us a bit more about that?
4: We work with newest motor manufacturers in the US, including General Motors, Ford, Volkswagen, Honda, amongst amongst many. And we receive data from over 20 million vehicles where we understand how vehicles are, are being used. And we understand a real-time environment, so we know within seconds the battery status of a vehicle. We know when it's being charged. And in terms of how we're helping policymakers, how we're helping DOTs, is that we understand at the moment, and one of the things we're seeing is that vehicles are being driven, and it's no surprise to anyone in industry, that range anxiety is really not an issue at all typically someone drives less than 40 miles a day and even on the slowest charging anywhere, taking into account incompatibility issues there may be, but you have enough charge in your vehicle. The bigger challenge is that, and we're learning from, we're learning from the data, is that people all come home about the same time and they all want to charge at the same time. And so we're seeing these big peak loads on the grid already and there is the data can solve the problem and data is not the new oil. That's a terrible thing to say. I hate people saying it. And there's certainly no no comparisons with lithium or anything else as an alternative uh, fuel source for for these vehicles. And data can not only help educate the policyholders, help educate the, the utilities providers, but actually help educate drivers. And, and finally, the automakers are now starting to approach things differently with a bit more intelligence. So that we used to, in the UK, of economy seven, where you turn your washing machine on at 2am in the morning with a timer and, and get the cheapest power. It's not about the cost of power, but it is about the grid being able to handle this huge growth of demand. At the moment, less than 5% of vehicles on the road are EVs, but that's growing. Policymakers are making sure that happens. The grid will not keep up. Biden has, in the Infrastructure Act, has budgeted $7 billion for 500,000 EV points. That is not enough. It might be enough for the, in, for the actual installation. It's not enough for the actual fundamental infrastructure upgrades required to deal with this demand. So the data we're seeing from vehicles, the platform we've built called EVOS is helping energy, make, energy providers, helping policymakers, helping automotive manufacturers make more informed decisions. You said obviously data can solve the problems. Can you just break that apart a bit for
1: our listeners? Explain how you mean that? Well,
4: it's interesting. We're at the start of COVID, so two years ago, and we saw data points drop through the floor. So we saw data use of vehicles and therefore the miles being that these vehicles are, are creating, so to speak, drop by 60% in a month. People just stopped driving. And then very within another three months, people were back, apparently driving summer distances. And we thought people aren't going back to work. And yet the research out there was just indicating that people were driving again. Actually, what people were doing was they weren't going to their local airport and then taking a short flight across to another state or another city. They were doing much longer journeys They weren't driving to work anymore, or they would, or they. Mm. But that the fundamental driving behaviours had changed, and having that live data is very important to be able to learn these new characteristics, these this new profile of driving in a real time environment is helping infrastructure investment be be directed in the right places. So prior to COVID. There were energy providers who had ideas of investing huge amounts to put energy into multi-storey car parks, for example. That's not really what's needed. But there does need to be fundamental investment on the ground where people live to cope with the demands when these vehicles get home at the end of the day.
1: I think these people will come home at the the same time after work. That's not going to change. So what could shift uh, in terms of the pressure on the demand on the grid and when you think of that something well, the, practical like that
4: the vehicle can inform the utility provider through our platform and say i've got 43 percent left power and i need 57 percent if i'm going to be fully charged tomorrow but by the way i usually estimate that i don't need any more i don't need that much power but just in case and the uh, the driver can decide if they want to have a full power or just a top up to, to cover their usual journeys tomorrow the vehicle will then communicate with the energy provider and the energy provider will say the best time for you to put demand on the grid is 3 a.m tomorrow morning and that sort of intelligence where we're on the vehicle being plugged in and just being preset, actually having that 15 minute burst of charge at 3 a.m. tomorrow morning where the grid knows it's not getting other demands on the, on, for other EVs or for other potential use cases is how data is how data's solving the problem.
1: It sounds a bit like the way that you describe it. The rollout of EVs is sort of inseparable from the way that we might use Absolutely. Vehicle data,
4: right? Absolutely. Every EV has the ability to make data available. The EVs with policymakers forcing these for, forcing things through, it's irrefutable that there's mass adoption out of EVs and therefore it's irrefutable that there needs to be a more intelligent approach to how infrastructure is invested in to make sure we can support this fundamental change of how we uh, power our journeys.
1: Thank you, Richard. And of course, there's a big role here for policymakers and government, obviously, in ena- enabling that rollout. And uh, we're now going to hear from Philippe van Geel, Secretary General of AVERA, which is the European Association of, for Electromobility. Uh, they have members across the European Union, also in Norway, Turkey and Ukraine. And he's going to tell us a little bit about which countries are ahead of the game of, on EVs and why that is.
0: The first one in the it's a world example is Norway, of course, already with a phase out, which is planned for 2025. Don't have to explain that they are the best of the class. A lot of lessons learned from their side. Why are they doing it so good? For us, the main reason is actually, my takeaway is is a policy landscape which has been established for a long time, where you see other countries sometimes failing because they get a new government, they change policies. And people at the end think, what will it be? Being myself situated in Belgium, it's not so long time ago that even yeah, plug-in hybrids were still promoted and where today or in the near future policies, they will be punished because we, we found out that plug-in hybrids are not the best solution. So the key success of that country is really a long-term policy, make the cleanest vehicles, the less taxed and the more you pollute, the more you get. Not only use the word punished, but you will definitely feel the difference in your wallet. We know how to put it in place. It's not a question anymore. Shall we do it? Is it a good technology? No, everything is there. Just do it.
1: So just do it. That's the main message there from Philippe, the Secretary General of the European Association for Electromobility. One of the key things that he brought out there from the Norway example was this long term policy thinking. And he also talked about incentives being really key for getting drivers to, to adopt EVs. What more could the UK do on the incentives and quote unquote punishment side? Maybe, Dale, we can go to you first
2: yeah sure thanks i think our government have just gone in the opposite direction and ended free road tax for electric vehicles and it would be wonderful if they took the vat away but uh, we have a government facing in the opposite direction we have more cars on the road as well and a bigger car market i think norway is a small country small population small number of cars and it makes it a little bit easier also a very wealthy country with uh, fossil fuel wealth actually uh, whereas the, the uk is struggling for cash right now as we all know so i think to take vat off would be an amazing thing to do, but I don't think this government will do And even, uh, even taking VAT off of the cost of charging out on the road would be something. But like I say, our government's gone the other way now. They've taken away free road tax. And uh, yeah, I think in our case, it'll just take longer.
1: Thank you. Melanie, what about you? What do you think could be the government could do more on the incentives slash punishment side?
3: Yeah, I think it's a little unfair to say that the government aren't doing anything. OZEV, the department, the department within the Department of Transport has got a pretty robust, both on the infrastructure side, the demand side, and also on the consumer side. So in terms of the demand side, there is still very low benefit in kind. There's still a very good salary sacrifice schemes Um on the infrastructure side, there's their support for local authorities, which to me is a really critical area. Local authorities need to be enabled to roll out the right charging point infrastructure for their inv- environment. And then on the consumer needs side, they're really focusing on how to measure reliability, ensuring that there's transparent pricing, and also to enable, try and make accessing charge points as easy as possible with contactless payment and encouraging roaming. And um, so that there is a sort of framework, yes, I agree that the road tax has been obviously being taken away from 2025. I think most people accept that that's probably by then the market will have shifted a significant amount. It's another two years away. And really, the onus should be on the car manufacturers to bring out lower cost models so that the mass market can easily adopt electric vehicles and the upfront cost isn't a barrier.
1: Richard, at Ouijo, your business is data from vehicles. We talked about that in our first episode. Is there a role for that for vehicle-generated data in supporting the rollout of EVs somehow?
4: Well, it's interesting. One of the things I heard, the, how policy is affecting decisions and choosing vehicles. And one of, the, one of the insights we've seen is that plug-in hybrids are being bought, but they're not being charged at all over 90% of one particular OEM we work with, their vehicles are being bought. The EV side is not being used once, it, once they're being bought or primarily being charged with fossil fuels. Now, the reasons for that are that we've then seen with this particular maker model of vehicle that the vehicle's been used for long journeys, so it's clearly part of a fleet. So you've got to be careful what you wish for. There needs to be, I think, a lot more uh, discussion, a lot more understanding about how vehicles are being used to make sure the right policies are in place and the right incentives. I think there's also a, disc- a disconnect between how you incentivize people to buy vehicles or companies to buy vehicles and actually the infrastructure that's required behind the scenes. And as I mentioned to you before, we're seeing a big issue already with the grid. The energy providers cannot provide enough infrastructure to support the demand that's coming in. So where there needs to be more incentives is on the energy providers, is, is our view to make sure the right infrastructure is there to support the demand that's already in place.
1: We're recording this here in London in our studio, and you've done a lot of work over in the States. What could, do you think policymakers here can learn from what the American kind of departments of transport that you've worked with are getting right?
4: Don't just listen to the lobbyists. Look at the data. There's, the data is showing a different outcome. I mentioned uh, mentioned before that that we're seeing a hybrid vehicle that's never actually recharged, and or majority never actually recharges, purely used for its for its combustion engine. So make sure you actually appraise the data if we make some some of these bigger decisions.
1: That the hybrid vehicle point is fascinating. People are basically just using them as petrol
4: cars. But they're taking advantage of the company car tax and it, the fact that the, the vehicles can be if they're put through a company, then there's no cost if there's if the company's profitable, and then the and then there's no company car taxed. And then, so then people get get the benefits of the vehicle in effect being, you could say, free, and and therefore that people are less concerned about worrying about compatibility or range anxiety, and because they know they can just put fuel in their vehicle whenever, whenever they come across a filling station.
1: One of the main points that Philippe made as well was around long term policy that this it worked for Norway because they were thinking very much ahead and followed policy for many years. We're obviously going through a time of some economic and political turmoil. Would the three of you feel confident that we can see a sort of a lot, we could, that we could, the UK could follow a long-term plan and really make this happen?
2: That would be nice, wouldn't it, if we could. <laughs> I, I don't think that we'll get anything meaningful from this government and any meaningful action on net zero generally, let alone electric vehicles until we have
1: another election, that's my view. Melanie, what do you think?
3: Yeah, I think from where, from all the discussions that I have, that the, the Department of Transport were pretty focused on electric vehicles because it's the only good news story in the, that they can actually talk about and they realise that there's a lot of the electric vehicle industry is, is huge. It's going to bring loads of jobs to installers, to charge point manufacturers, to the energy companies. From what I see, there, there is a focus on this. I agree on a wider net zero strategy, I'm not convinced. But actually, I do think that electric vehicles are seen as a relatively easy win because there is a plan, there are vehicles there, there is the infrastructure, and there are Lots and lots of companies engaged in this to make it happen.
1: Richard, I've got to ask you: Do you have an electric vehicle? I do have one, yeah. Yeah, and do you? Did you ever have any kind of worries about getting to a charging point, or are you completely relaxed about that?
4: I had a one of the first BMW i3s, and the f- one that had a forty-three mile range. <laughs> slightly so, worrying <laughs> and I live in the middle of nowhere and this was before infrastructure really was and it was one of the things that was the impetus of why I set Weedra up and why we focused on EV was because I felt real in range anxiety in fact it was 40 miles from the, the garage I bought the car from and where I live so you pushed it the, the three miles home uh, the, there was the three miles left and that was my first experience of range anxiety was buying that vehicle and going okay you really now know what range anxiety means now things have changed fundamentally since but, but it's a big issue and it needs to be addressed.
1: Thank you. We're almost out of time, but really quickly, our listeners, if some of them have tuned in, they might be wondering, how do I get an EV? How does it work? What's your big piece of advice for anybody listening who's thinking about it?
3: I would say absolutely go and do your research. There's nearly 100 different battery electric models out there. Go for full electric. Don't go for a plug-in hybrid. Take a look at the, take a look at map and you'll see all the different charging infrastructure that's out there. Don't believe the hype in the media that there is an infrastructure out there. It's growing and you'll have a great time. When we surveyed our users last month, only 2% said they would go back to a fossil vehicle. So people, once they get an EV, they love them and go out and have a test drive. Thank you very much,
1: Melanie, Richard and Dale for joining us today. You've been listening to a special podcast series from the New Statesman Spotlight team in partnership with Wejo, the smart mobility tech company. Join us in February for the third and final episode of this series when we will travel into the future to look at how autonomous connected vehicles will change our lives. You can find out more about Wejo on their website.